Luke chapter number 10. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 25. Luke chapter number 10. We'll continue sort of the thought we've been following for the past few weeks. Uh, sort of a theme in the Word of God this morning. We'll catch you up real quick here in just a moment. Luke chapter number 10, verse number 25. The Word of God says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. He said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing it is to be in your house, Lord. We do thank you for this Christmas season and what it means and represents uh, the incarnation of your Son, His coming and being made flesh, that He might die in our place. And Lord, what a glorious thing we celebrate, especially in light of that death, His glorious resurrection, that He ever liveth, able to save sinners, able to change our lives, able to meet our needs. I pray, Lord, that this morning the Word of God would pierce effectively into the hearts of those that are here. I don't know anyone's heart's condition, Lord, but you know everyone's heart's condition. There's no one here that escapes your eternal gaze. And I pray, Father, that you would just use your Word deftly in their hearts and minds, that you'd get to the very heart of what's going on in their lives, and that you, Lord, would uh, draw from them an obedience, a submission unto you that would bring you glory, that we might look more like Christ, that we might be more like Him, if there's one amongst us lost, I pray you'd show them that need before it's eternally too late that they might be born again by your grace. Lord, for everything that happens today, we'll have you to thank, you to praise, and you to glorify for it'll have been you that's done it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past three weeks, we have been following a little thread through the Word of God and looking at a theme that has unveiled before us. I want you to take notice with me in our text of verse number 34 in the parable that our Lord told. It says that the Samaritan, when he comes to this wounded man and, and administers medicine and healing and, and ministry to him, it says he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. The Bible says he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, if you've been here the past few weeks, you already know what our theme has been. But if this is all new to you, I would point you to the word in that is found in the verse that we just read. It's fascinating to me that in the Word of God, there are only four occasions upon which an in, I-N-N, an in is mentioned in the Word of God. Now, of course, we use the term today a hotel. It is a lodging place for travelers that are making a journey, a place where they can find all the things that they need and get the rest that they so desperately need as they, as they travel. But it's amazing to me that in all of the record of the Word of God, uh, that only four times is this topic, this thing mentioned, this event mentioned of a person going to an end. And we spent some time walking through and looking at each of them. And we come this morning, the very last occasion in which it is found in the Word of God. Now, you might be saying, well, that's good preacher, and it's fascinating that it's there, but what does it have to do with me and my life? Do you know, when I began to think, meditate on an end and its significance in the Word of God, there's a few things that brought to my mind, and hopefully this will frame a little bit of the preaching this morning. When I think about an end, it reminds me of the Christian's experience in this life. 
What I mean to say by that is the way we know God as a believer, as a child of God in this life. How many of you know that one day we're going to know Him differently than we know Him now? Amen? In fact, when I think about an end, there are three things that jump out to me that remind me of the Christian's experience in this life. First, I would note that an inn is a temporal location. It's just a temporary dwelling place. You don't live there forever. You're going from point A to point B. But if you're going to make the journey, you have to stop by an inn and you're only planning on staying there for a night. Most people, when they go to an inn, listen, hey, uh, we might start preaching here in a second. Most people, when they go to an inn, they don't even unpack their bags. Can I tell you why some of us have grown weary of this world? We've done unpacked our bags. Amen. We put everything of value in this world, everything of meaning in this world. Then as we watch the world burning down around us, we're troubled and we're disturbed. I ain't just preaching at you this morning. I'm preaching at me this morning. I'm saying we need to pack up the suitcase because this world is not our home. And so an inn is just a temporal location. And you know, in many ways, the way we know God right now, and I'm not saying our salvation is temporary. I believe that when the Lord saves a man, He does it right and He does it eternally. Amen. I, I believe that we're eternally saved and secure by His grace if we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. But the way that we know Him now is a passing way. One of these days, we're going to know Him differently. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, now... We see through a glass darkly. It's how he described our interaction with God. We see through a glass darkly. But then, he said, when we're in heaven, face to face. He said, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So an inn is a temporal location. That sort of reminds me of the Christian life. But then number two, an inn is a hopeful location. When a person is traveling, one of the things they look for and long for is to see an inn, to see a resting place. If you've ever done any kind of traveling on the road, you know what it is to be traveling, maybe late at night, road weary and worn, and to just be looking for that holiday inn sign, to be looking for that best western sign, just waiting, looking. Every exit you come on, you crane your neck over to see if there was one there. You check the little signs at the exit to see if there's one there. It is a hopeful Location. Can I say to you this morning, the only hope in this world is found in Jesus Christ. Now, why is it hopeful for the traveler? Well, because it's, number one, it's a place of refuge. This man in the story that we've read, this evil could not have befallen him if he had been at an inn. One of the reasons travelers looked for inns is because out on the road they were exposed and vulnerable, but when they got to the inn they had found a place of refuge. That sort of reminds me of Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way in Romans 5, 9, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. We have found a refuge in Jesus Christ. His name is a strong tower. We can run into it and we are saved. So it's a place of refuge. I would say it's a hopeful place because it's a place of rest. In fact, that's really one of the main reasons people look for an inn. They're looking for a place where they in safety can lay down and rest and recuperate and get ready for the journey that is ahead. And is it no wonder that the Lord Jesus is also described as our rest in the New Testament. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, there remaineth therefore rest for the people of God. And by the way, the Hebrews writer goes on to describe for us what that rest is. Rest is not idleness necessarily, but rather it is ceasing from your own labors. You know, the Bible tells us that when God created the heavens and the earth, uh, that uh, after six days of creating this world and this universe, that on the seventh day He rested. God didn't rest because He was tired. He rested because He was finished. And He didn't cease to uh, work in this world, but that work of creation was done. So He ceased from that work of creation. And Paul, I believe it's Paul. You can argue with Paul when you get to heaven about who wrote the book of Hebrews. But the Hebrews writer uh, describes for us this rest that we have in Jesus Christ. That if a man rests in Christ, he ceased from his own labors. You know, that's what happened when you got born again. You were trying to get to heaven uh, through your own means, through your own strength, through your own righteousness. And then you saw that was futile. You saw that was hopeless. And instead you said, I'm going to trust that what Jesus did on the cross is enough. And you rested in Him. Jesus said this, Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. So it's a place of rest, and that reminds me of the Lord Jesus. But then I would say this, it's a hopeful place because it's a place of resources. 
When a person went to an inn, they were going there because they could find food for their animals and food for themselves and water and uh, maybe medicine, whatever it might be. In fact, in the story that we've read this morning, the parable that our Lord gave, that's one of the reasons the Samaritan brought him to an inn is because he only had so much resources on him that if he could get him to the inn, then all the food and medicine he might need would be there available for him. In other words, an inn was a place you could go and get what you needed. Can I remind you that, listen, Jesus is our great resource in this life. Now, that's true for temporal things. It's true for material needs that we might have. But it's true even far beyond that. He satisfies our very soul. Paul said this in Philippians 4.19. You could quote it with me, I'm sure. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So an inn is a temporal location. It is a hopeful location. But then it reminds me of the Christian life because it is an essential location. If a person's going to get from point A to point B, Oftentimes, the only way when he was traveling that he could get there was to stop by an inn. And can I remind you, if you're going to get from point A, which is your lost condition, uh, to a place, point B, of righteousness with God, justified with God, if you're going to get to God's heaven and God's presence and peace with Him, there's only one way to get there. You're going to have to go by way of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So I hope you see this morning, before we get into our message, that uh, what we're looking at when we when we describe an end, we're talking about how we know Jesus Christ in this life. And each of these instances of an end in the Word of God have revealed amazing things about that life that we have with Jesus Christ. For instance, the first time an end is mentioned is in the book of Genesis chapter 42, whenever Jacob's sons are traveling from Egypt to Canaan. You remember they went there to buy corn and to buy supplies during the time of famine and during the time of drought and Joseph knowing who they are and wanting to bring them to a place of repentance and then consequently restoration, uh, he, uh, after they had purchased the food, he takes their money, puts it back in the bag and sends them on their way. And the Bible tells us when they got to the end that they opened their sack, they looked inside and there was the money for the corn that they were carrying with them. We could say it this way, that when Jacob's sons got to the end, you know what they found? They found that the price had already been paid. You know what you'll find when you come to Jesus Christ as a lost sinner? You'll find that the price has already been paid. He doesn't, listen, He wants you to have the corn. He wants you to have the life. He wants you to have the salvation. But He don't want any more money. He's already paid the price for it. He doesn't want your good works. It doesn't mean that He has not called us unto good works after we've been saved. But as a matter of earning our salvation, it carries no currency with God. He's already paid the price. In Exodus chapter number 4, we read of the next instance whenever Moses traveling, uh, interestingly enough, from Midian near the land of Canaan back to the land of Egypt. And as he is en route, he's got his wife Zipporah and his two sons Eliezer and Gershom with him. And he's traveling back to Egypt. He's been sent of God to go back and deliver the children of Israel. There's a problem in Moses' life. There's an area of disobedience there. He had not yet circumcised one of his sons. The other he had, but for various reasons, and we preached on all the possible reasons when we preached a couple weeks ago, but he had not obeyed God in this matter. And the Bible tells us that the Lord met him by the way in an inn, that the Lord grabbed him, the Lord sought to kill him. It was not until Zipporah took and circumcised their son that God released Moses and sent him on his way to carry out the will and work of God in his life. Now you say, preacher, that's terrifying. And it is terrifying. But you know what it teaches me? When Moses got to the end, you know what he found? He found that the perfect Lord requires a pure life. In other words, God doesn't require our righteousness to save us, but He gives us His righteousness after we're saved and He does expect us to live righteously in light of it. There are some requirements placed on the life of a believer. Don't think for one minute that God doesn't care how you and I live. He does care how you and I live. In fact, we could say if the first end was the end of redemption where the price had been paid, the second was the end of requirement where we find out there were requirements placed on the life of the believer. We spent a little time this past Sunday looking at Luke chapter number 2. Imagine that. Uh, Sunday closest to Christmas, we preached on Luke chapter 2. We're originalists around here. Somebody say amen to that. But we looked at the next instance of an end. And of course, you're familiar with how that when God came to the end, you know what He found? He found the accommodations were already occupied. You know, the sad truth is in so many Christians' lives, uh, they're just, they don't have room for God. It's not that they're empty and they won't come to God. I'm talking about Christians now. I'm talking about believers now. It's not that they're empty and won't come to God. It's that they were empty. God filled their life. They got content with that and began to be distracted by the things of the world. And they let other things crowd God out. Is it any wonder that at the end of the church age, Jesus is seen on the outside of the church 
knocking on the door, seeking an entrance in. Do you know what they say when he knocks? They say, hey, listen, I'm rich and increased with goods. I have need of nothing. They just didn't have room for him. You know, that's true of most Christians too. We have let the things of the world crowd the Lord out. Can't pray, don't have time to pray. Can't read our Bible, don't have time to read our Bible. Can't go to church, don't have time to go to church. We've got all these things crowding out God in our life. And then one day when tragedy strikes, you know, the sad thing is we'll lift our hand towards heaven and we'll say, God, where were you? And all the while, he desired to have a part and a place in our life, but we let other things crowd him out. We could call this the end of reception, but sadly, God was not received. This morning, however, we read a parable that the Lord told. You know it is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's what we commonly call it. There are a lot of things we could say about this parable. I mean, there is an application of this that is what we would call dispensational in nature. In other words, Jesus is teaching them something about the failings of the Old Testament law to redeem and to restore man to his rightful position with God, but showing how through the grace of the Savior that the Lord came to mankind, did for them what they could not do for themselves, and restored them to the place that they needed to be. There was a dispensational understanding of this. I would say there is a practical understanding of this. You remember this whole parable is prompted by a man looking at Jesus and saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord looks at him and says, you know what to do. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And the man looks at him willing to justify himself and he says, and who is my neighbor? Isn't that just like man's nature? Uh, Lord, what do you want from me? This is what I want from you. Not that, Lord. What else do you want from me? That's just like mankind, isn't it? And so the Lord tells this parable to communicate the fact that he had a wrong-headed perspective about righteousness and how it is displayed. He viewed righteousness as an earned matter. He viewed mercy as an earned matter. And he was saying, who is worthy of my mercy? And to that, Jesus' reply is, God is worthy of. God is worthy of your compassion. God is worthy of your righteousness. God is worthy of your mercy. You're not exhibiting it to the person you're showing mercy on, but rather you're paying it as a due unto God, the one that's had mercy upon you. So there's a practical application. To that, the Lord Jesus turns around, looks at him and says, who was a neighbor to this broken and wounded man? And the man finally understanding receives and accepts what the Lord has said. I don't know that he accepted the Lord as a Savior, but he acknowledges the wisdom of what's been said. But can I say this morning, I think there's another way in which we might look at this passage. When I look at it, it's true that there is a sense in which the Samaritan is a picture of a man that loves God and wants to seek to show compassion unto others. And that's absolutely true. And I'm not trying to take anything away from that. And there is a sense in which we could look at this and see the man that is wounded as a lost sinner who is not helped by the moral law, who is not helped by the ceremonial law, but by the Savior's grace, he is restored and saved and redeemed and set to a right position with God. That's absolutely true. Can I say this morning, there's another way in which I think we can look at this passage. And that is of any individual, but let me say even of a saved individual this morning, who through poor decisions, who through unwise actions, finds themselves a victim of tragedy and calamity. Finds themselves, just like this man did, laying over in the ditch, wounded, stripped naked, humiliated, beaten, robbed, and half dead, and who men would look at and give up hope on. You know, there's a lot of folks this morning that are in that shape. There's a lot of folks who have let sin ravage their life and maybe it's been compounded by what others have done to them in addition to that. But they find themselves in that same situation as that man this morning. They're just laying over there waiting to die, laying over there in bitterness and in misery. Can I tell you this morning, they may have given up hope. The men that passed by and behold from afar may have given up hope. Can I tell you the Savior has not given up hope on you this morning. You know what this man found when he came to the end? He found that healing could happen. He found out that that injury, spiritual injury, doesn't have to be terminal. It doesn't have to be something that buries us. We can get back up when we go on with Jesus Christ by His grace and by His help, and we can be used of Him. We could call this this morning the end of restoration. I'm glad there's restoration. The, the psalmist said this, He restoreth my soul. That was a saved man saying that. I mean, in as much as we can use that terminology about Old Testament saints, that's a man that was a believer that knew God, that was righteous with God, and he said he restores my soul. You know, even child of God sometimes needs our soul restored. We don't need our righteousness positionally with God to be restored. It's never, it's never stained or besmirched. It's the righteousness of Christ. But every once in a while, listen, your soul will get weary and you'll need it restored 
to a place of fellowship with the Lord. And I'm glad to know this morning that restoration, healing, it can happen. What can we learn from this passage? Well, let's notice three things this morning, then we'll go to the house. First, I want you to notice with me the tragedy that this man suffered. This story really revolves around three things. It revolves around a great calamity that befalls this man, the response of others to that calamity, and then the compassion that the Samaritan shows towards him. And so this whole parable opens in this way. It says in verse 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, uh, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Herein we have the story of this man's great calamity, his great tragedy, his great fall. But you know, we find that it does not happen by accident. It is not merely the product of misfortune. Can I say something to you this morning? I'm, I'm not saying that tragedy cannot befall men for reasons I do not understand. But I am saying to you this morning that very often when we find ourselves spiritually in the ditch, if I can say it that way, spiritually in the ditch, it has not happened by accident. There is a path we have followed. We have spent so much time seeking to coddle the the sentiments of people that may have had misfortune fall upon them, that I feel like we have failed in warning people from the expected ordinary consequences of a life of disobedience. Now, on the off chance, I'll give you my Surgeon General's warning. On the off chance, there's somebody out there that say, Preacher, problems befell me and it wasn't my fault. Listen, I understand that can happen. I can say that the grace of God is sufficient for you too. But can I say that for every single one of us, there are certain actions that if we take, we can expect certain results. And that's what we find in this man's life. Notice three things with me. One, notice his declining course. The Lord Jesus did not have to give two different locations. He could have said this man went on a journey. This man was sojourning. This man was traveling. But the Lord Jesus, in crafting this parable, went out of His way to tell us the two places that this man was traveling between. Notice first off his direction. The Bible says a certain man went down. Can I tell you something? In your life and mine, when we choose to participate in sin, we've made a downward step. Now very often we want to dismiss that and ignore that and and set that to the side until we've reached rock bottom. But it behoove us to instead at the first sign of an incline to stop and say, what direction am I going? I tell you, every one of us is going in a direction in life. Every single one of us. We're either getting closer to God or we're drifting from Him. We're either getting closer to His Word or we're, we're, we're closing our ears towards it. We're either getting more fervent in the prayer closet or we're letting the prayer closet dry up and die in front of us. Every one of us, we're going in a direction. The question is, what direction are we going? The Bible says this man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And by the way, that's not a geographical distinction. Uh, that's not a topographical statement. There are times the Bible, and you've probably heard this. I, I heard it from being a young age. My pastor always taught us it and pointed out that in the Word of God, every time a man went to Egypt, he was always going down. Doesn't, doesn't matter where he is on the map. Doesn't matter if he's south of Egypt. Doesn't matter if he is, is at a lower base by sea level altitude. He was always going down to Egypt because God was making a commentary on what it was to walk away from the place of God's blessing and presence and to go instead to the place of punishment. It is always a downward step. What direction are you going in life? I notice his direction here, but then notice too his destination. Again, Jesus didn't have to give these two names, but he says this man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, what do we know about those places in the Word of God? Well, we know that Jerusalem is the city of God. It's the place of God's presence. It's the place of God's blessing. It's the place where He had chosen to put His name there. It's the place where He had chosen to put His presence. It is, we could say, I think without any exaggeration, it is the most singular, important place in the entire world. It's the center of God's compass. You want to understand the Word of God in light of world history, just put uh, Jerusalem at the center of the compass and what God talks about and what God ignores will all of a sudden make sense because it's all relative to what happens to that place in Jerusalem. I'd say this, this man was in a place where he couldn't get in no better place. He was in a place where he couldn't get in no better place. Can I say as a child of God, you and I, saved and in fellowship with God, we're in a place where we can't get in no better place. It doesn't matter how much money could be in our bank account. It doesn't matter how, how many material things we might have. It doesn't matter how much popularity or prominence or influence we may have. If we're a saved child of God, walking with God in fellowship with Him, we are at the center of God's compass. We are at the most important place we could be. There is no better location we could go. But isn't it amazing how we can be in that place and grow dissatisfied? 
this man left Jerusalem and there could have been a myriad of reasons why. I don't want to, I don't want to inject meaning that the Lord didn't inject into this parable, but I do think it's significant that he was at Jerusalem, but the Bible says he left there and went to Jericho. Now, what do we know of Jericho? Jericho, Jericho, of course, was the site of Joshua and the children of Israel's great victory against that walled city of Canaanite, <laughs> excuse me, pagan worshipers. But you remember that after Jericho was destroyed, that the Lord said that it was a cursed place. That any man that rebuilt the walls of Jericho would lay the foundation in his children. That it was a cursed place that no one was to go, no one was to build, and no one was to dwell in. So here's this man where he's at is the place of God's presence, the place of God's blessing, the place of God's favor, but he leaves there to go to the place of cursing, to the place of punishment, to the place of disfavor with God. Now, if that's not a vivid picture of the choice that a child of God makes when they engage in sin in their life, I don't know what possibly could be. We are choosing to leave the place of God's favor and blessing. We know what we're doing. We know we're taking a downward step and we're going in the direction of cursing and disfavor and disobedience. It should be no surprise. I see this man's declining course. But then notice number two. I see his destined calamity. The Bible says it in just four words. The Bible simply says, and fell among thieves. And you say, preacher, what's the significance there? Well, the significance is this. If a man was going to travel unaccompanied between Jerusalem and Jericho, it could only be expected that there would be bandits and thieves upon the road. It's part of the reason, by the way, the psalmist in Psalms 23 talked about passing through the valley of the shadow of death. He was talking about a geographical location, a place of steep canyons where bandits would often dwell to ambush people. At that time, there was no banking. And when a man traveled, he had to travel with all the means and all of the money and all of the wealth he needed to sustain him for the journey. And if he was moving, if he was going somewhere permanently, he might have everything he had on him. There was a lot of big business in falling upon travelers. In other words, it shouldn't have surprised him that what happened to him happened to him. Again, there might have been calamities that have befallen you, and there certainly have that have been befallen me that have took me by surprise, took my breath away. I didn't expect that to happen to me. But when we begin to live in sin, we should expect that sooner or later, punishment will come chastening will come. If God loves us and God does love you, chastening will come. Every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasteth. He scourgeth every one of His own. So we see that this was a destined thing. It wasn't a surprise. Why was it that what happened to him was not surprising? Well, the Bible says he fell among thieves. What does that tell us? I think it tells us two things. One, he fell among men with no morals. That's what a thief is. A thief is probably, short of someone that is accused of of, of some sexual sin, a thief is probably the most despised criminal in all of society. Most of the time we can understand and maybe even empathize if a person had reasons if they committed a crime of violence or something to that effect. But a thief has always been the most despised element of human society. You know why? Because it's always been reckoned that if a man will steal, he'll do anything else. What does it mean that he fell among thieves? It does not say he fell among murderers. It does not say he fell among outlaws. It says he fell among thieves. It doesn't say he fell among male factors. It says he fell among thieves. What's it telling us? It's telling us that he fell amongst a group of people that had no morals. Listen, if you run with a world that has no morals, don't be surprised when it turns around and chews you to pieces. Don't be surprised when we keep company with it, when we we live our lives surrounded by men that laud and applaud wickedness. We shouldn't be surprised when wickedness is committed upon us. So he fell among men with no morals. But then I would say number two, he fell among men with no mercy. A thief is a man that lacks the capacity to have pity and empathy on another person. Can I tell you something a thief never thinks about? What it's going to cost the person he's stealing from. Never thinks about it. Never occurs to him. Uh, this has been a thing over the past few years. It's been real common when copper got up to be, uh, uh, you know, a very valuable metal, and, and thieves and, and people that had uh, problems in their life would go around. And, and churches were were battling with this. We never had it happen here, praise the Lord. But churches were battling with the fact that thieves would come by and they'd cut up their air conditioning system, also they could steal two, three hundred dollars worth of copper. They never thought about the fact that it cost that church six, seven thousand dollars to replace that system. It never even dawned on them. Probably most of them, if they just showed up at the front door of the church and sat through a church service, been respectful and been willing to listen to a presentation of the gospel, they probably could have gotten all the help and more help than they even wanted if they had been willing to do it. But they never even thought about that. It, was, it just it never even dawned on them. It never occurred to them what it would do to another person because a thief lacks empathy. Why would we think then, if we surround ourselves by men that have no empathy, why would we think they would ever empathize with us? 
Now, somebody's going to say, well, now, preacher, you don't know. I'm trying to reach them, and, and I think I'm making headway, and I'm thinking this, that. You can tell yourself everything you want, but can I tell you something? Listen, the God of this world, the devil, the Bible calls him a thief, a destroyer, a killer. He comes to, to kill and to steal and to destroy. And listen, you may think you can win that person. You may think that person won't win you. And I understand we need to have empathy with lost sinners. I'm not saying we need to put ourselves in a bubble and pretend like the world's not going to hell around us. I know we need to reach sinners. We're called and commanded to reach sinners. But there's a difference between reaching them and letting them reach us. There's a difference between, like the Lord Jesus, eating with publicans and sinners and making the publicans and sinners your crowd that you take into deep communion and fellowship with. I'm just saying, if you run with that crowd... Sooner or later, they'll turn on you. See, it's easy to look at this man and think, oh, how tragic what befell him. But I think when we read carefully, we find that it is no wonder that this befell him. Doing what he did, it's no surprise. So we see his destined calamity, but then notice his dire condition. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about this, but I, I want to say a little bit about it. Notice there are four things that happened to him. The Bible says, first off, he was stripped of his raiment. Uh, the Bible tells us in this that he was humiliated. Now, I understand why they did this. Probably they did it for two reasons. One, because they could take his clothes and, and sell them or keep them or maybe rip them to tatters, use them for old rags. I don't know, but there's probably another reason. They probably felt like if this man was stripped naked, there was a lot greater likelihood they could get away before he could ever get to hell and ever get anyone uh, to pursue after them. But you know, at the end of the day, what it really was, more than anything, it was an act of humiliation of him. Can I tell you, sin will always leave you ashamed. If you're a child of God, it will. If you're lost, it won't. And even some lost folks have enough about them to blush. But I don't take that for granted in this day that we live in. Most lost people are proud of their sin. But when you got born again, you lost the ability to sin without shame. You lost the ability to sin without shame. And sin will always humiliate you. It will always leave you degraded. The Bible says not only that, he was wounded. The Bible says they wounded him. I tell you, sin will do things in your life that will leave scars that won't go away quickly. There are people in this room that would give testimony if I asked them to that in their life some of the things that they did God forgave them of and God washed them of but still to this day they live with some of the scars of those things. They were wounded by sin's uh, devastation upon their lives. So he was not only humiliated and wounded but notice he was abandoned. They departed him. And of course they did. Why would they stick around? They were done with him. Did you listen to what I just said? Why did they? Why would they stick around? They were done with him. Why would they stick around? They were done with you. get what I'm saying? When sin's done with you, why would it stick around? The pleasures of sin, the companions of sin. Why would those things stick around? That's why a man's always left broken and empty and lonely when he uh, engages in sin. Is because sin, whatever pleasure, whatever soothing and salve that it provides to your conscience will soon abandon you when it's done with you. It abandoned him. You know how it left him? It left him devastated. The Bible says he was half dead. Now, I want to be careful what I say here, and I don't want to twist what God says here. I understand the significance of this. I understand that God is portraying here a spiritually dead person in the sense of a lost person, and certainly a person that's born again is never spiritually dead. That part of us that knows God, that new man is always alive. But can I say this? It is possible for a man in his walk with God to so stifle the influence of the Holy Spirit that it's as if that voice did not speak. It's as if that influence was not there. And he may be walking around with blood pumping through his veins, with synapses firing off in his brain, but at the end of the day, there's no spiritual life to speak of in his conduct. You say, preacher, is that possible? Sure it is. You know people and I know people. You know how I know that? Because we pray for them together. And we pray and we ask God things like this. We say, I don't know if they're saved or not. But I'm asking God to do whatever needs to be done in their life. How many times have I heard you say, and how many times have you heard me say, pray for this person. I don't know if they're saved or not, but there's no evidence of God in their life. Now, they may be righteous with God in the eyes of God positionally, and I don't know and you don't know, but it does suggest to us this, that whatever spiritual life may be there is flickering at such a dim level that it's almost as though it is complete darkness. In other words, left him devastated. Left him with nothing but just a corpse, barely breathing. Can I say spiritually, I've seen people left in that condition where they just have no desire to go on, no desire to function, no desire to go on and live for God, to get up, to move forward, to do anything for God anymore. They're just left half dead, abandoned and paralyzed, laying there on the side of the road, 
of spiritual life. I've pastored people like that. I've seen them. I've seen them come in uh, burdened and injured and wounded and broken. And I've seen them hold everyone at a distance. And I've seen them try to build that little wall and try to maintain some distance and not get engaged and not serve because they've been hurt one too many times. Can I tell you, you don't have to stay in that condition. There's hope for you this morning. There's healing for you this morning. You know what I find here? I see the tragedy that he suffered. Number two, I want you to notice the, the travelers that he encountered. There's three different people that approach him. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I do want to take note of them. First, look at verse 31. The Bible says, By chance there came down a certain priest that way. and When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You know what I see here? First off, I see the priest's avoidance. Now, there's a very clear biblical reason this man probably did this because if he is a priest, when he saw him, he assumed that man was dead. And if he had gone over and had touched that dead body, it would have befouled him, it would have polluted him, and he would have had to go through the ritualistic ceremony of cleansing himself before God before he could commence with his priestly duty. But isn't it interesting? Doesn't that encapsulate the way a lot of people view the broken individual? I don't want to get too close and touch their life, or it'll sully me. I'm glad the Lord wasn't looking at us that way, aren't you? I'm glad He didn't look at us and say, I don't want to get too close to Him. It, it, it might dust off on my suit. I, I need to keep my distance from I'm glad He was willing. He, listen, He didn't just approach unto our sin. He was made our sin for us. But you know, some people's perspective when they see someone broken and injured is just to stand at a distance and to avoid And By the way, if you want a dispensational understanding, I would say this is, uh, probably akin to the moral law, that all the moral law can do is maintain a distance between the sinner and the righteous. It can't make the sinner a righteous man. But I see here the priest's avoidance, and that's how some people treat you when you get messed up. Anybody ever been messed up? I've been messed up before. I've been messed up. I'm talking about gnarled up, twisted up in sin, broken, messed up, bitter, not where I needed to be. You know, some people, the only way they know how to deal with you is just to back away. Back away. I see the priest's avoidance. But then there's a second man. Verse 32 says, Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Now this is amazing to me. So the priest, he's walking down the road and he just sees this body laying over there in the ditch. And he thinks to himself, that's probably a dead body. I better not go close or I might... I, I, I might, I might, uh, you know, sully myself. I, I, I might, I might defile myself by getting close to it. But the Levite, when he looks, here's what he does. He goes over and he investigates. He gets down real close and he looks at the man and he sees that he's not dead. He sees that he's breathing. He sees that help could be had. But you know what he does? All he does is see. He looks at him and looks at him and looks at him and gets up and walks away. You know what I see here? I see the priest's avoidance, but number two, I see the Levite's analysis. You know, that's how some people want to treat you when you messed up. All they want to do is get in real close and stare at your life. All they want to do is analyze everything that went wrong and what you did and what you could have done and how you should have changed this, how you should have changed that. It's amazing how many Monday morning quarterbacks there are in the spiritual realm. They want to tell you every single way you messed up, how you got messed up, how this happened, how that happened. Listen, I appreciate that there needs to be a postmortem of our mistakes. I understand that there is value and wisdom in learning where we went wrong. But at a certain point, the half-dead man don't need to be told how he got half-dead. He knows. He was there when they beat him. You weren't. And probably he already knows what has happened. Now, I'm not saying there ain't a fair amount of analysis that needs to be done, but that's all some people want to do. They don't want to help. They just want to stare. If you don't believe that, I know you believe that. You've been out driving in this snow. You just stare. Just stare. Like that snow's going to get up and walk around or do a back. Just stare. You know, that, that's human nature. It is. That's the way it is. Pass by any wreck and even you yourself won't be able to resist the temptation want to look out the window and see how bad it is. And there's some folks that whenever calamity comes to our life, I, I know some of them. I've met some of them. I ain't going to say I've pastored some of them, but I ain't going to say I haven't. I've known some that all they want to do is jump in the car and come take a drive right by the wreck scene of your mistakes. Look out the window, rubberneck, and tell you everything you should have done to straighten it out. I see the, the Levite's analysis, but then I see, and I'm glad we don't have to end there, aren't you? I, I see the Samaritan's affection. The Bible says in verse 33, but a certain Samaritan. We could talk about all the things that implies how this Samaritan uh, you know, was was not uh, fully Jewish, how culturally there was no reason he should have been expected to have to do anything. But let's just notice for a moment what he did do. The Bible says a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, and I love this verse, the Bible says he had compassion. 
Can I tell you something? It might be nobody cares about what you're going through. I know we like to say, oh, no, 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 people care. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I'm just being straight with you this morning. Sometimes you might be going through something that might be nobody around you cares. Can I tell you, there is always someone that does care. The Lord cares. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And because of that, He's able to succor them that are tempted. What does that mean? He's able to comfort us. He's able to soothe us. He has compassion on us. I hope you're surrounded by a bunch of people that care what you're going through. But even if you're not, there is always one that does care. We find His affection towards this man. He looked upon this man. He was moved towards this man. It's what it means to have compassion, to be emotionally inconvenienced for the sake of another person, to allow yourself to feel what they're going through and, and to feel sorry for them and bad for them and to be moved and pained by what they're experiencing. And that's how this Samaritan responded. And the rest of the story is really contained in this thought. We find here the, the tragedy that this man suffered, the travelers that he encountered. And then notice the treatment that he received. How did he get back where he needed to be? Well, there's a few things I've noticed. First off, I want you to notice with me. Look back at verse 33 again. And let's read the end of verse 33 into verse 34. The Bible says, when he saw him, when the Samaritan saw him, that he had compassion on him and went to him. And you might say, preacher, of course he did. And that's just part of the story. Why is that significant? Can I just point something out to you? He loved him before he ever went to him. He didn't wait to get up close and be moved by the tragic scene. He looked and he could understand immediately what had happened. And before he ever came close to him, he already loved him. Can I tell you this? I noticed the first thing. You know what this man received from this Samaritan? Number one, his preemptive love. Before the Samaritan ever came up close, he loved him. And by the way, you know why he loved him? Because he saw what he was from afar. I, I don't have enough time to preach everything I wish I did on this, but can I just try to say it best as I know how? Can I tell you something? Listen, he knew what he was going to find when he got up there. You know what that man would have probably thought to himself? I'm going to lay here and die because even if somebody sees me, they won't want to fool with me. When they see how bad a shape I'm in, they'll know it is hopeless. They'll know there is no point. They'll know it will be a massive inconvenience and expense upon them to try to pick me up and carry me somewhere and bind me up. Can I tell you, the Samaritan knew how bad he was before he ever got to him. He knew how bad he was when he loved him. He already expected to pay the cost he was going to have to pay. Are you picking up what I'm saying this morning? I'm saying this. You might say to yourself, well, preacher, God's going to be done with me. Why would God fool with me? God knew how messed up you was going to be before He ever saved you. At your very best, He knew your very worst. He loved you and He'd hide in your place knowing every single betrayal you'd commit, every single sin that you'd engage in, every single time you'd disappoint Him, everything you would do to offend Him. He knew all of that. He loved you before He ever came to you. The Bible doesn't say that God sent His Son into the world and thereby began to love the world. The Bible says God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loved the world before Jesus ever came into the world. One of the problems I've always had in the way some people describe the dynamic of God the Father and God the Son is this idea that God the Father is sitting up in heaven with a thunderbolt in His hand just waiting, itching to destroy mankind and then there's Jesus down there saying, no, 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 please don't. Can I tell you something? God the Father loves you just as much as God the Son loves you. He loved you so much He gave His only begotten Son. Can I, tell you, I believe this to be true anyway, that it would take a great act of sacrifice a great act of, of personal angst for my son to give himself to die in your place. But I do believe I can say it'd be harder on me for him to do that than it would even be on him to do that. It would be harder for me to give him than it would be for him to give himself. God the Father loved you before Jesus ever came into this world. And yes, of course, God the Son does love you indeed. They both love you eternally and impeccably and invincibly and immutably. I understand all of that. But I'm saying this to you this morning. You'd say, preacher, God can't keep loving me. He can't keep using me. I'm all messed up. I'm all broken. I'm all twisted. He knew how messed up you was going to be. He loved you before you ever got in that shape. And He knew you was going to get in that shape. So I see His preemptive love. Then I notice His presence. The Bible says He went to Him. He went to him. I'm glad the presence of the Lord is present with us. I'm glad that the Lord don't run from us when we get messed up. I'm glad that when He sees we're going to be a hassle, He don't run away from us. <laughs> if He did, He'd never have anything to do with me. And I suspect if you were honest, you'd admit He'd never have anything to do with you too. 
But we find he's present. Everyone else had abandoned this man. But the Samaritan, he didn't run from him. He ran to him. And let me say to you this morning, you might look at it and say, Preacher, nobody understands. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody will have anything to do with me. I'm done. I'm messed up. I'm broken. I can never be restored. I can never be used. And you can keep telling yourself that. But while everybody else is running away from you, I'm here to report to you this morning, the Lord's trying to run to you. If you'll just receive Him, if you'll just hear Him, if you'll just open your heart to Him, He'll come in. He'll take entrance. And he'll take control. I see his preemptive love. I see his presence. Then I see his prescription. The Bible says he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. What does that oil and wine represent? Well, both of them seem to represent the Holy Spirit at different places in the Word of God. And it seems as though the oil is representative of the anointing and healing ability of the Spirit of God, while the wine is a picture of the joy that the Spirit of God brings to us. So here's what he did. He took a broken person. Before he ever bound them up, you know what he did? He poured in the oil and wine. You know what God will do in your life and mine? When we're, when we're still nice and raw from the injury and pain and heartache and calamity of what we've been through, you know what he'll do? He'll come with his spirit. He'll minister to us. With his word, he'll, he'll soothe us. He'll save us. When we're in that place of vulnerability and rawness and tenderness in our life, he'll come in and he'll minister those things to us. Then you know what he does? Once he's got all that in our heart, all that in our life, he'll take and he'll bind us up. He'll put us back together. He'll get us back together. Straighten back up the way. He'll fix internally and then He'll fix externally. And thereby He'll restore us. You know, so often when we let bitterness sit on the throne of our heart, we get to a place we don't want that oil and wine. We don't want that joy. We don't want that peace that God tries to give us. Because we're too addicted to our anger. We're too justified by our anger. We're too vindicated by our outrage. We don't want to let go of those things. Can I tell you, if you ever want to be bound up, you're going to have to let the oil and the wine in first. If you're ever going to want to be put back together, you're going to have to let God soothe your heart and soothe your peace of mind. You're going to have to let Him minister and work in your life. I see His prescription here, but then I want you to notice His picking up. The Bible says He set Him on His own beast and brought Him to an inn and took care of Him. I'm glad He didn't just soothe Him and then leave Him where He was at. He took Him to a better place, to a better location. Can I tell you, God don't want to leave you where you're at? I'm not talking about geographically. I'm not talking about your location. I'm talking about spiritually. He don't want you to just live in that condition. He wants to remove you and take you and put you somewhere you need to be. He wants to restore you to a proper place of fellowship with Him, of service to Him. He wants you to be in the right situation. So I see His picking up. And then I notice finally His provision. The Bible says that on the morrow when He departed, I think that's interesting. I think it's instructive. It reminds us that the Lord has departed. But you know, He says, I'm getting ahead of my message, but He says, I'm going to come back. I'm glad He's coming back, aren't you? I'm glad He's coming back. But when the time came that He had to depart, here's what He did. He left two things, or we might say three, depending on how you want to say it. First, I want you to notice that He left Him with two pence. The Bible says on the morrow when He departed, He took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto Him, Take care of him. Now, two pence don't sound like a lot of money. In today's money, of course, it, it, two pennies wouldn't be very much at all. And even in that time, it wasn't a gargantuan amount. But it's a very specific amount. Again, Jesus could have said He gave him all the money he'd need, or He gave him some money, or He made provision. But the Bible says He gave two pence. Why do you think He'd do that? Well, listen to what I found in the Word of God in the book of Exodus chapter 30 and verse number 13. The Bible says this about the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt and they got to the other side of the Red Sea. This is what God commanded. It said, This shall they give everyone that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. And a shekel is twenty gerahs. And half shekel shall be the offering to the Lord. Now a half shekel, you won't believe this, happens to be two pence. And you say, Preacher, what does all that mean? Well, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt... They were bond slaves under the Lord. And so the offering they had to give for their redemption from Egypt was two pence to the Lord. It was the price of redemption. You know what it showed? It showed they belonged to God. That they were His. That He had paid for them. That He had bought them. Now you say, Bridger, what does all that mean? To a broken, gnarled up, bitter, twisted up individual. What does that all mean? Well, here's what I think the man was saying before they left. He was saying, here's the price I'm paying for him. He belongs to me. I'm coming back. Anything He needs, you give to it. And I'll be good for it. You know why? Because I've purchased Him and He's mine now. I can't tell you calamity won't befall you again. I can't tell you problems won't arise in your life again. But I can tell you this. If you're saved by the grace of God, you're a child of God. You're His problem. 
You belong to Him. He has a vested interest. You say, preacher, how do I know that this won't happen again in my life? You don't know it won't happen again, but you'll know the Lord loves you and owns you then just like He does now. You're His. You belong to Him. So He left him with two pence and then He left him with a promise. The Bible says, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. He said, I'm coming back for him. I'm not going to leave him at this end forever. I'm sure that man was as thankful and grateful as he could be to be in that end on that day. That had been the rescue of his life. But you know what he probably wanted more? He probably wanted to go wherever that Samaritan was and live with him. You know, that's sort of a picture of where we're at today. I, listen, God's been, I, I was thinking about it. My heart was worshiping when Connie was singing about how good he's been to me. Can I say, just as a testimony on this December 27th, he's been good to me. He's been good to me. He's been far better to me than I could ever deserve. And I'm sure proud to be at the end this morning. But I don't want to live at the end. If I'm being honest with you, I'm so thankful I ought to be laying in the ditch dying. But I'm not. I'm at the end this morning. and The oil and the wine have been poured in and my wounds have been bound up. My bill has been paid. And I'm thankful for all of that. And I love it. I don't want to live here. One of these days, I want to go to Samaritan's home. I'm His. He bought me. And one of these days I want to go and I want to be where He's at. He's not here right now. Right now, He's at home, seated at the right hand of God the Father. But guess what? He's coming back one of these days. And when He does, listen, He'll take us to a place where there's no thieves, no bandits. He'll take us to a place where there's no brokenness, no heartache, no wounding, no injury, no being stripped naked and humiliated, no being left half dead. We'll be at a place of peace, security, and presence with Him. But in the meantime, can I tell you, He's already paid everything we need. You don't have to stay broken. You don't have to let that bitterness reign in your heart. You don't have to let that guilt and shame reign in your life. You don't have to let that sin loom heavy over you. The price has been paid already and there's a place of restoration if you'll just come to Him. Let's bow together this morning. The musician will come and play and the altar is open. And I believe if God done something in my heart this morning, I'd slip out of my seat and come down here and just talk with Him about it. I don't know what it may be that God spoke to you about. But I do know that whatever it is, it must be important. God wouldn't speak to you for no reason. There may be an area of anger, bitterness in your life. There may be an an area of unrepentant sin or disobedience or willfulness against God in your heart or in your mind. Or it may be that you're in perfect fellowship with Him, but your heart is broken for another that you know that's living in that condition this morning. And you want to see God do for them what He's done for you so many times. If that's you, why don't you find a place down here this morning? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify your Son. We ask it in His name.